God, as we open your word now um, and hear from Alan, I just pray that you'll speak to us through your spirit, Lord. We thank you for your living word, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, verse 14? Um, been going through, you've been going through a series on the seven churches, and this is the seventh. So this is the last one. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of him, sorry, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, I will... Sorry, because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear, so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes, so that you can see. Those whom I love are rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I've been back through every sermon that I remember preaching at Hukunui, and there's one that comes to mind that I forgot about, um, to see if this particular story I had told before. Uh, so if, in fact, it has um, escaped my attention and I've told it before and you've heard it, I apologize. The point today, though, will be different. So stay tuned. A number of years ago, I was working from home and I was standing actually um, at my computer and my son, who was 12 at the time, Jackson, came, uh, came into the room and wanted to talk. And without lifting, without turning my head or without changing what I was doing, I said, hey Jackson, how you doing? Continued to work. And so we carried on this conversation for a little bit. Uh-huh, right. Oh, that's good, Jackson. Great. Excellent. Just continuing to look at the computer, continuing to work. And I remember having the distinct thought that this is quite impressive. I'm not building this up. I was actually doing what males fail to do. I was multitasking, right? I was working and carrying on a conversation with my son. And then a thought came to my mind. Because the background to this is that in the weeks prior to that, I was reading a book called How to Really Love Your Child. And the gist of that book, I don't know why it took like, you know, a couple of hundred pages to say it, but the gist of that book was really quite simple. Look into their eyes. That's how you really love your child. That's how actually you really love anyone. Look into their eyes. Pay attention. 
Because you see, research has been done, and I've heard about this before, research has been done that that you can tell children that you love them every single day, which I had done. Honestly, I had done that. I had done that every single day of my life. It wasn't difficult. I had done it more than once. My children are well used to hearing the words, I love you. And yet, research shows that children who hear, and I would even say sometimes, it doesn't matter what you do in life, I will love you unconditionally. You can always be safe with me. But you see, research shows that you can tell a child that every single day, and they grow up not believing it, not feeling it. Why? That bothered me. Because the whole point of telling them that you love them is because you want them to know it, believe it, experience it. And yet, children can grow up hearing that all their lives and never believe it. Why? It suddenly struck me. This is why. Because they hear, I love you, and they see, no, Dad, you love your work more. They wouldn't think of it like that. They probably wouldn't be able to articulate that, but that gets into their subconscious. And they see that day after day after day after day. They hear, I love you, but all they see is the side of your head. They never stop to see your eyes. And the reason I say that is because some people see the church this way. People on the outside see the church, the people in the church saying, I love God. We love God. We love Jesus. We sing it. We pray it. We talk about it. We tell everyone. And yet when they see us in our day-to-day lives, they really see no difference between us and the rest of the world. They see that we have just as much time for them as anyone else because we're too wrapped up in our careers. We're too wrapped up in our possessions. We're too wrapped up in church. All they get to see is the side of our head. And and you see, so they hear one thing, but they see another. And as a result, they don't believe the message. It doesn't matter how much we shout it. It doesn't matter how much we tell them. This is why actions are so important. In May 2018, a faith and belief report in New Zealand was published by the William Wilberforce Foundation. And on people's, there was one section on people's perceptions of Christianity, and 69% of respondents, this was the second largest response to this question, 69% saw the church in New Zealand not practicing what they preach. It doesn't matter whether they're right or whether they're wrong. That's what they think. That's what they perceive. And my guess is that the reason they perceive it is because they never get an opportunity to look into our eyes. They hear that we love God, but they don't see that we love them. To them, we're just fire insurance salesmen just trying to deliver them from an eternity in hell. Related to this, a number of years ago at the Lausanne Congress on the World 
can't say that for a moment. Evangelization in Cape Town, if you've heard of Lausanne Conference. Christopher Wright, who is the director of Langham um, around the world, asked this question. What is the greatest threat to Christian mission and world evangelization? His answer is the idolatry of believers is the greatest obstacle to world mission. In other words, this is what he means. We can't take our focus off our idols, our careers, our possessions, our money, even our ministry, our church activities. We can't take our focus off these things long enough to look into people's eyes in this world so that they know without a doubt that we love them more than we love anything else. Well, this describes the church at Laodicea. It may not describe you, but it describes the church at Laodicea. And in verse 14, Jesus introduces himself as the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. By now, you're probably aware that the way Jesus introduces himself to each of these churches is the crux of their problem. If you want to know what each church is struggling with, look at the introduction. It tells you. And so we know that the crux of the problem in Laodicea is witness. That's their problem. And Jesus points to the root issue in the words ruler. He's the ruler of God's creation. The idea of rule is important. Whatever rules us is what we idolize. Right? Whatever rules us, whatever we worship, whatever rules us is what we worship, is what we idolize. Someone who is ruled by money, for example, well, money rules their life. Money is their life. Money is their love. Everyone can tell because that's what you focus on all the time. And they're trying to get your attention, and your focus is on money. Money is ruling. Well, that's how Jesus feels about his father. His father rules Jesus' life. Jesus is ruled by his father. God is Jesus' life. Jesus loves his father. And everyone can tell. That's why he is the true and faithful witness. Because everyone sees This is the heart of the Laodiceans' problem. They are being ruled by the world, which is borne out in the next couple of verses, in verses 15, 16. You know these verses really well. Who doesn't? I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, I apologize If you have always heard these verses preached in a particular way, you've held on to an interpretation that goes something like this. 
Jesus wishes you were either full on for him or completely uncommitted. I'm sorry that that's not the interpretation. Kind of sounds a bit odd that Jesus would wish that you were fully uncommitted, doesn't it? I visited Greece and Turkey in 2016. I was on a tour there fortunate enough to travel around the seven churches. And to the north of Laodicea, so if you go to Laodicea, you walk around the old city and and they've built it up. Um, North to the city of Laodicea is the city of Hierapolis. And there are hot springs there. You can go there today. It's a very touristy place. There are all sorts of springs with beautiful white crystallized things coming out of them and and they sort of look like cliffs coming down. And there are hot springs there. And and they're for healing. The the hot mineral water back in the day, back in the first century, people would go there to bathe in them for healing. It was therapeutic. And to the south of Laodicea was a town called Colossae, the book of Colossians. And they would get beautiful mountain running, cool crystal water coming down to their city to drink. It's fantastic, fabulous drinking water. And in the first century, aqueducts, which you can see today, were built to travel from these cities to the city of Laodicea to transport the water. But you see, by the time the water got there, it was lukewarm. It would cool, you know, the hot water would cool down on the way and the the cold water would warm up in the hot Turkish sun. And so by the time it got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm, which meant what? The hot water was no good for healing anybody and the cold water was no good for drinking. You see, Jesus is saying that you, Laodicea, are no good for anybody. I wish you were either hot, I wish you were good for healing, or I wish you were cold, I wish you were good for refreshment. I wish you were good for something, but as it is, you are no good for anybody. You are having absolutely zero impact on the world around you. You are lukewarm. And Jesus says, you make me want to vomit. Because that's what the lukewarm water was like. No one wanted to drink it. It made you feel nauseous. God's church should be an oasis in this world. But it often gravitates between two extremes, doesn't it? We either function like God's judges in the world, selling fire insurance. In other words, you better love God, but if you don't, he will punish you forever. Or we become so much like the world that we have nothing substantial to offer. Laodicea is the latter, nothing substantial to offer. Remember in the Gospels in Matthew 9, Jesus compared himself to a physician, the doctor. That means, that gives you an idea of what the church should be like, right? 
like a medical clinic, like a doctor's surgery. But whoever feels comfortable turning up to church saying, I'm sick, I'm struggling, I'm depressed, I'm addicted to something, my marriage is in trouble, I'm a workaholic, I'm dying. Who feels comfortable turning up to church like that? Because that's what a doctor's clinic is for. Sick people. People who are in pain. People who are hurting. Why don't we feel comfortable doing that? Because we don't think of ourselves as a place of healing or refreshment. And certainly the outside world doesn't. I might never get back invited, invited back after today. It's my last sermon on the roster anyway. The other thing about Laodicea is that it was the major junction for important trade routes. So whether you were going north, south, east or west, you had to travel through Laodicea. So it was always lots of traffic, busy city. Junction, major intersection kind of thing. The banking center of the region. And so no wonder that the Laodiceans thought of themselves as rich. I've acquired wealth and I do not need a thing in verse 17. It was common for some Christians, still is, think of the rich young ruler in the Gospels in this regard, to think of wealth as a sign of God's blessing. Now, you go back into the Old Testament, you can kind of see that. Deuteronomy 28. If you obey me, you'll be blessed. You'll be blessed in your fields, blessed in your homes, blessed in, you know, blessed, blessed, blessed. And so, and so wealth was, a scene, was seen by some as a sign of God's blessing. So the logic goes like this. I am rich. I must be blessed by God. God must be pleased with me. But Jesus isn't pleased. He says, you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I remember when I was in Laodicea, they, have a, they had a medical school there. Very fine medical school back in the day. There's remains of that today. People would come from long distances to train as doctors, especially known for its ophthalmology department. In other words, healing of the eyes. It was, it, you could also get a very popular eye powder in Laodicea. And the farmers in the area had developed these black sheep, which produced this highly sought-after wool for cloth manufacturing. In other words, Laodicea was quite the place. And while on the outside, people could come to Laodicea, the poor could get rich, the blind could get healed, people could get clothed. The church in the midst of the city provided no spiritual nourishment for those who were enslaved by wealth, those who were blinded by the idolatry within the world. The church had nothing substantial to offer because they themselves were caught up with it. You ever heard of a blind spot? Driving along the road, 
right? Two-lane road, and then you pull out. You're on the Auckland motorway or something or on the expressway going up to Auckland, and you, and you pull out and honk, all of a sudden you pull out, and, and you've just realized that you had a blind spot. You didn't see the car coming next to you and honks the horn and you suddenly realize, well, the Laodiceans had a massive blind spot, a massive blind spot. I get this term from a book um, I, a number of years ago back in Australia on the Sunshine Coast. I, I met up with a pastor friend at coffee club and sat down and the first thing he did to me was show me this orange book. Some of you probably know the book already. He said, you must get this. And it was by David Platt called Radical. And straight after, I walked down to Kurong, which wasn't far away, and brought the book. And in the book, he talks about blind spots, the church in the West having a blind spot. You see, it's impossible to read the Gospels and get the idea that Jesus thinks, whatever the Old Testament might say, it's impossible to read the Gospels and get the idea that Jesus thinks that wealth is a sign of God's blessing, of God's favor. It's not. It's not that Jesus is against wealth, but he knows how it can rule the heart. In his book, Radical, David Platt says this, concerning Jesus' teaching on money in the Gospels. And generally, Jesus is like, be generous with it. Even to some people, give it away. But don't let it take over your heart. Can't serve both God and money. And concerning this teaching, um, Platt says that we don't want to take Jesus seriously. Right? We, we, many of us are literalists when we come to the Bible, but we don't want to take the Gospels literally. And he says, so I quote him here, he says, we are afraid of what it might mean for our lives. He goes on to say, this is where we need to pause because in being afraid of what it might mean for our lives, we are starting to redefine Christianity. We are giving in to the dangerous temptation to take the Jesus of the Bible and twist him into a version of Jesus we are more comfortable with. A Jesus who doesn't mind materialism and who would never call us to give away everything we have. A Jesus who is fine with nominal devotion that does not infringe on our comforts. A Jesus who wants us to be balanced, who wants us to avoid dangerous extremes. A Jesus who brings comfort and prosperity as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. Written for an American audience. But do you realize that we are do but do you realize what we are doing at this point? We are molding Jesus into our own image. And the danger now is that when we gather in our church buildings to sing and lift up our hands and worship, we may not actually be worshiping the Jesus of the Bible, instead we may be worshiping ourselves. He goes on to ask, where have we gone wrong? Well, here's my answer to that question. I may be wrong. We have mistaken lukewarm Christianity for normal Christianity. We have mistaken lukewarm Christianity for normal Christianity. We have believed the lie that we can store up treasure on earth and still receive it in heaven one day. 
This kind of Christianity makes Jesus sick, makes him feel nauseous. Ron Sider, who um, I heard back in Brisbane a few years ago, I can't remember what director of some Christian organization he is, he said that Christians earn a combined annual income of $16 trillion worldwide. Yet the average Christian gives less than 3% of their annual income. You were a bank manager back in Australia. He told me the same figure. Over the last 30 years, the incomes, incomes have gone up fabulously. Not enough to keep in pace with house prices, but gone up. But the giving has dropped. Income up, giving dropped. If the average Christian gave 10%, evidently, Sider says, we'd have enough money to alleviate poverty of 1 billion people by 50% in one year. We'd have no problem at all funding whoever wanted money if we would only just give 10%, which for some is just a drop in the bucket. Richard Stearns wrote a book called The Hole in Our Gospel, Hole, H-O-L-E. Again, this is for the U.S. church, you know, so, you know, we can let ourselves off if we think that it doesn't fit. He said, the world we live in is under siege. Three billion people at the time of writing, this was, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, are desperately poor. One billion are hungry. Millions are trafficked in human slavery. Ten million children die needlessly each year. Wars and conflicts are wreaking havoc. Pandemic diseases are spreading. Ethnic hatred is flaming and terrorism is growing. Most of our brothers and sisters in Christ in the developing world live in grinding poverty. You can testify to that. And in the midst of this stands the church of Jesus Christ in America with resources, knowledge, and tools unequaled in the history of Christendom. I believe that we stand on the brink of a defining moment. We have a choice to make. When historians look back in 100 years, what will they write about this nation of 340,000 churches? What will they write about New Zealand and Kiwi Christianity? What will they say of the church's response to the great challenges of our time? AIDS, poverty, hunger. Will they say that these authentic Christians rose up courageously and responded to the tide of human suffering? That they rushed to the front lines to comfort the afflicted and douse their flames of hatred? Will they write of an unprecedented outpouring of generosity to meet the urgent needs of the world's poor? Will they speak of the moral leadership and compelling vision of our leaders? Will they write that this, the beginning of the 21st century, was the church's finest hour? Or will they look back and see a church too comfortable, insulated from the pain of the rest of the world? empty of compassion and devoid of deeds? Will they write about a people who stood by and watched while 100 million died of AIDS and 50 million children were orphaned and Christians who lived in luxury and self-indulgence while millions died for lack of food and water? Will schoolchildren read and discuss about a church that had the wealth to build great churches but lack the will to build schools, hospitals, and clinics? In short, will we be remembered as the church with a gaping hole in its gospel? Because that's Laodicea. 
a gaping hole in its gospel. So what does Jesus have to say to this church? He says in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and solve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Notice what he says. In the very first few words, he says, from me. Buy from me. Do you want to be rich? Come to me, and I'll give you something more secure than money. Do you want to be warm? Come to me and experience the warmth of my embrace. Do you want to be secure? Come to me, and I'll never let you go. Do you want to be safe? Come to me, and I'll surround you with my love. Do you want to feel free? Come to me, and I'll liberate you. Do you want to see clearly? Come to me, and I'll enable you to see me in this world in a way in which you could never imagine. This church at Laodicea is in real trouble. But this is not a turn or burn message. Revelation is a love letter. Just flick back for a moment to Revelation 1.5. This letter, book, is from Jesus Christ, verse 5, who is a faithful witness. There's the words that introduced the Laodicean letter, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Look at the first thing it says, to him who loves us, who loves us. This book is not from an angry judgmental policeman with a wooden baton. This is from a lover, someone who loves them. And so he addresses the church with love. In verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. It's very simple. Take this message seriously. Stop trusting whatever it is that you think will bring you happiness, safety, security, and joy, and come to me. That's what Jesus is saying. Remarkable. Concerning what comes next, one commentator says, it's strange perhaps that the one church that was in real trouble drew from the Lord the most intimate and loving promise. In verse 20, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. You know how the book of Revelation ends? God's people are pictured as a bride. Jesus is possibly thinking here of Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 2, where the bride is sleeping and the bridegroom is outside the door knocking. And the bride says, I slept but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. And then the bridegroom on the other side of the door replies, open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. 
And as Jesus depicts himself knocking on the door of his bride, he's not thinking of himself as an angry policeman, some kind of fire insurance salesman. He's thinking of himself as a loving bridegroom who longs to be with his bride. He's waiting. He's knocking. He's offering intimacy with himself. He's thinking about, just just think about sitting down. Just think. If you want to close your eyes, that's fine. Think about sitting at a table eating with Jesus. I don't want to use the word fellowship with here because fellowship is just a cliche. It's more. It's not just you being with Jesus. It's Jesus being with you. How often have we thought about looking into Jesus' eyes or being with him? But what about Jesus looking into our eyes? Jesus being with us. He delights to be with us. We are not simply called to delight to be with him. He delights being with us. Think about sitting at a table with Jesus and he listening to you. Think about him being interested in you. Think about him giving you his full attention. Think about you being loved by him. Think about him looking into your eyes. Last year, I was doing some teaching sessions at night at a church, and um, I asked the people there, what would it feel like for you to feel loved by others? And one lady said, for people to give, them my, to give, to give, for people to give me their undivided attention. That's what it's like to sit at the table with Jesus. For you to have his undivided attention. He is looking at you. He is loving you. He is looking into your eyes. Henry Nouwen says, It is the place, being with Jesus, it is the place I will receive all I desire, all that I ever hope for, all that I ever need. See, Jesus is not wanting to come and read the riot act to these people. He wants to be with his bride. He's not wanting to vomit because he's hopping mad. He's nauseous because he's nothing more to them than a ticket to heaven. He's not sick because he's angry. He's sick because of what they've made him into. Someone who loves them so dearly has become a ticket. And, you know, if you go off to a sports game with a ticket, what do you do when you get to the stadium? You throw it away. Don't need it anymore. You may question whether the Laodiceans are even saved. Well, they're certainly on the edge. There's no question. But it's not too late for them. Jesus doesn't promise them a place in his kingdom based on the way things are now. Jesus doesn't promise them a place in his kingdom based on the way things are now. He calls them to repent. Verse 21, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, 
just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Those who are victorious are not those who say they are Christians, but those who give evidence of it. Jesus is not inviting these people to become Christians when he says, answer the door, I'm knocking. He's inviting them to let them back, let him back into their lives, to let him come back and eat with them, to have a relationship with him again. But it's also a warning. Don't miss the warning here. Fail to allow me back in and you will not be with me, reigning in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, at this point, we get, we, get, we get lost in theological problems. Oh, does this mean they were never saved if that happens? Does this mean they lost their salvation if that happens? Or, or perhaps are saved and, and, just, and they're losing their rewards. Jesus is not interested in theological problems like we are. Just answer the door. Right? Don't get hung up on the theological problems. Just answer the door. doesn't matter whether you lost your salvation, never had it. Just answer the door. But don't miss the warning. These people are in real trouble. If they do not answer the door, they will not be in the new heavens and the new earth. Are you lukewarm? Are you lukewarm? Jesus wants to be with his bride. And you are his bride. Why are we sometimes lukewarm? Well, the clue again is in the introduction. Jesus introduces himself as the ruler of God's creation. And if he's the ruler of God's creation, then no created thing can ever satisfy and satisfy us in the way that any created thing can. He's the only one that can satisfy. He can satisfy more than money. He can satisfy more than business. He can satisfy more than a house. He can satisfy more than a possessions. I want to finish by asking you to think about what is it why is it that we struggle with lukewarmness? And here's my answer to it. It's because typically we do not think of Jesus in the same way that we think of wealth or career or possessions or whatever it may be. We typically think of Jesus as someone that we trust in to get our sins forgiven or someone to get us into heaven. And it's very easy when we view Jesus like that for him to become a doctrine, someone abstract on a piece of page, on a paper, someone that we sing about and pray to, but we, we, we never think of him as a bridegroom wanting to be with us as a bridegroom wants to be with his bride on the wedding night. 
For some people, that kind of thing is almost blasphemous. But Jesus is so much more than a ticket to heaven or sins forgiven. He's not a ticket. He's not a means to an end. He is the end. He's not a means to forgiveness. Forgiveness is a means to him. He's not a ticket to heaven. He's not a means to heaven. Heaven is a means to him. He's come to satisfy our deepest longings now. Now. By the way, if you have cravings and you have longings and you, and you have pain because you don't feel like Jesus is fulfilling them, then come and see me. Or see anyone here, Gary, elders, take me out for a coffee. I will tell you that I live where you live. I sit where you sit. I struggle with lukewarmness. Have you ever, let me ask you a few questions. Have you ever experienced the contentment and delight that comes with getting more money? You ever experienced that? I have. Now let me ask you this. Have you experienced that same feeling with Jesus? Was it just limited to money and possessions or whatever it is? Have you experienced that with Jesus? Remember chapter 1, verse 5 again, from him who loved us. Have you experienced the warm glow of Jesus' love in your heart? I'll ask that again. Have you experienced the warm glow of Jesus' love upon your heart, in your heart? Have you ever looked for Jesus to satisfy you in the same way that you might look to a career, wealth, or what others think about you? Do you think of Jesus in that way? Because that will protect you against lukewarmness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. that you have come as a bridegroom for his bride. You are deeply in love with us, your people. You always give us your undivided attention. You look into our eyes and if we could see, and one day we will, we will know that we underestimated how much you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>